I'm really excited as I have prepared for this. I think with the Gospels, you sometimes feel very familiar with them, but actually when you look at them properly, you realise there's so much in there and there's so much we don't understand. And we just keep coming back to them and go, wow, that really is dynamic. That really is culture changing. Obviously, we've heard already Mark is this, is this gospel writer. He was very direct. He was a straight talker. He's got the shortest gospel. He essentially wants to get to the point straight away. He doesn't, he's not a waffler. He, um, he wants to come and bring exactly his message. And um, we know Chris started by looking at who Jesus is as the Messiah. And Matt looked last week at Jesus being genuine or fake. And this is what Mark was trying to show in, these, in this first chapter. And this week, we're looking at the whole of chapter two. We're looking at three stories within that chapter. Um, and there's loads of stories in there. There's actually, well... There's four stories in that chapter, so we're missing the last one. But we're going to be seeing some people who rejected Jesus. So when we talk about was he genuine or fake, these are people who actually rejected Jesus as the Messiah. But also within these stories, we see remarkable transformation and renewal in some. Mark, I believe, wants to show us in these stories that we're going to be looking at how Jesus wants to point us to a new way. Okay? When I look at the overview of what these stories are saying, this is about Mark letting us know Jesus has come to point us in a new way, a new way of relating to God. He wants us to point us towards new ways of doing things. He wants to point us towards what he has promised in Scripture. And when it comes to new things and doing things in new ways, actually what we find is all of us, we don't like change. And we can all be quite resistant to change. I just wanted to start by looking at a few funny examples of inventions, really, that um, people were resistant to, but actually they broke out and now they're commonplace, okay? But just to try and help us to see that actually we, we often are resistant to change. Uh, so the first one is ice, believe it or not. Obviously, people in cold climates were used to this resource, but it wasn't until the early 19th century that the ice market became a global economy. And it was a guy uh, from New England called Frederick Tudor. It says he spent decades trying to drum up support, interest in harvest and ice and sending it over to hot countries. And um, he took his first ship, it says, over to the West Indies, where everybody in his hometown was mocking him and laughing at him, thinking, what are you doing, you crazy person? It says, actually, with a 130-ton load of ice, that he took over, and he basically used all the resources to do this. And, you know, he got there, and people were interested, but it didn't take off. And actually, he says he had to make most of it into ice cream, um, because he had to get rid of it quickly, and he lost a lot of money on it. But actually, he became known as the ice king, eventually, when actually people did take hold of it, and they realized that actually... You could put it in drinks, and you could use it in medicine with swelling and all that sort of thing. And suddenly, it's this huge economy that's a multi-billion pound economy that, at first, people were very skeptical of. They didn't like the idea of, what are you doing taking ice to to hot countries? It sounds crazy. There's the first one. Second one, believe it or not, was the printing press. Okay? This was in uh, 1492. It was a monk, actually, who mocked the printing press and said, there is no way the printing press is ever going to take off. He, um, he argues that handwriting 
was the moral superior to mechanical printing. And we all know how wrong he was, <laughs> just by how big the printing press has become. And actually, revival broke out as a result of the printing press. So somebody who has a faith mocked something, and out of it came huge revival. Uh, finally, the mobile phone. Um, 1981, a few telecommunications consultants who were very skeptical about whether this would ever take off. Even the guy who invented it, who's called Marty Cooper, he's known as the father of the mobile phone. He also said that there's no way that I see this ever taking over landlines in houses. People just won't get rid of their landlines. He says, no matter what generation future, the landline's here to stay. But the mobile phone at the time was just too expensive, too clunky, too big. Battery was, the battery life was terrible. And so as they looked at it, they were like, you know, this is just, it's never really going to take off. But for those who are really wealthy, well, they might use it as a perk. And how wrong when we look at technology today, when we see the mobile phone and we think it's, it's actually the fastest growing technology in the world today. So that's just a few helpful things to look at as we look at inventions or culture and how change is always resisted. So we're going to start with the first story. It's a well-known story. These are, this is a paralyzed man who's lowered through the roof. We are literally going to take a whistle-stop tour over these stories. And I just want to ask a few questions. What's going on? What was the culture of the day? And what new way was Jesus wanting to bring within those stories? Just very simply. So, a few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. And since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it, and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. He got up, took his mat, walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. This is an amazing story, isn't it? So often we gloss over it as well-known, but this is a man who's been paralyzed. There's obviously something um, deeply wrong with his body, and it's a spectacular miracle, isn't it, that he performs here. Um, and just asking that question, what is going on? Well, obviously Jesus is, we hear he's back in Capernaum at home. Actually, people think this was Peter's house, okay, that Jesus was in. We see there's lots of crowds gathering around. There's a big crowd. Jesus' popularity at this point in time is vast, actually. There's people coming to see what is going on. And just to say, this account of the paralyzed man is in other Gospels. It's in Matthew 9 and Luke 5, okay? And we read, obviously, these four friends who come. They bring their friend who um, we don't know that much about. We know he's sick. We know he's paralyzed. We know he can't walk. But we don't know any more about his condition than that. 
Um, obviously, it seems quite urgent. These friends are on an urgent mission to come and help this friend of theirs. In those days, they had staircases on the outside of houses. So obviously, we find out that these crowds are surrounding the house. It's very busy. And the only way for them to get in is not through the front door because the crowds are so vast. But they go up the side of the house and they lower them through the roof. They lower them through. Jesus sees the faith of his friends. And he then tells them, or he then says to them, your son, your sins are forgiven. And then there's some teachers of the law, some scribes who are investigating what Jesus is doing. They're there. And Jesus knows what they're thinking. You notice that? It's not that they're saying this. He just knows what they're thinking. And he addresses them because he knows what's on their minds. Just to say the the scribes, these men who are here in this passage, the teachers of the law, they're like professional religious people. Just try and give you some insight into what they're like. They're like solicitors or magistrates or teachers all rolled in together. And their key role was to give detailed guidance to people as to how to apply the laws of God in that day. And people would go to them and they would ask them questions about the law and It would be questions that were unanswerable from looking specifically at Scripture. So it would be things like, could they walk this far on the Sabbath? Could they wear this item of clothing? Or did it go against Scripture in some way? Just reading David Pawson, Bible teacher, he recounts a story of going to Israel and um, seeing a kibbutz, which is a piece of land, which is a sort of agricultural piece of land that um, Jews as a community would farm. And he goes, he talks about going to see this, and he went to the land, and there's these large poles, 15-meter poles, that are lining the edge of this land. And there's a wire that connects each one of them up. And so he says, what, what, what is this all about? What's, what's this for in the farming agricultural world? He was told, actually, this, this wire that's there is so that people know on the Sabbath they're allowed to walk out to this point. They're not allowed to step over this wire on the Sabbath. That's actually going too far according to the law. And so that's the sort of questions where you would have gone to the scribes who would have tried to help you understand how do you apply the law? What can you do and what can't you do? And you know, in this story, we find out the scribes, they're very troubled at what's going on. They don't like what Jesus is saying. And essentially, as I said, he senses what they're asking or what they're what they're worried about. And so he then refers to himself as the son of man. And he's talking about his authority. And he then tells this man to pick up his mat and walk out. And this was an amazing, it says, everyone was amazed at at what they saw. So this is what's going on in this story. So I want to just quickly ask, what was the culture? What, What things were supposed to be being done in their culture? And what new way is Jesus pointing to? So, the first thing just to note is actually the people in this story who are offended are the scribes. Very simply, the scribes are offended by what Jesus is saying. And you know, Jesus here is being deliberately controversial. Have you noticed that? Instead of just healing this man, you know, he's lowered through the roof, and instead of him just going, you're healed, get up and walk, he deliberately says, son, your sins are forgiven. Didn't have to say that, but he does. 
And the scribes, they knew the law inside out. They knew that only God can forgive sins. They knew that, actually, to get your sins forgiven on the day of atonement, people could go to the temple. And the priests, who were appointed by God and were representing the nation of Israel to God, they could, people would come to the priests and they could be cleansed of their sins on the day of atonement. Okay? So, for Jesus to say, son, your sins are forgiven, in their eyes, this is absolute heresy. He didn't have the authority of a priest, and in their eyes, he's not God. And sin was not something that man could atone for. Sin was something only God can deal with. And this is the major problem going on in this story as they listened and they watched Jesus. So this is the culture, this is the Jewish culture of what is going on. This is the problem for them. And so what new way is Jesus pointing to as he's bringing this? Sorry, that current culture there. One is this authority. By what authority does Jesus have? They just saw a man. And the second is temple. Okay, Actually, to have your sins forgiven, you had to go to the temple. It had to be done on a certain day in a certain way. Okay? What's Jesus pointing to? Do you know, as I look at this world, we live in a world that is prone to looking at the symptoms rather than the cause. Okay? We're, obs- we're obsessed with what we can see. And within the Jewish religion, do you know, it was all about what you did or did not do. It was all about making sure you didn't eat this, you didn't break this law, you weren't seen by these people doing this, you weren't to hang out with these people. And it was all based around what people saw and outward appearances. I remember when Jessica was about two years old, and uh, she nearly broke us as parents, to be honest. She went through a stage where every evening she would wake up at, it was almost bang on two o'clock in the morning, and she would lose it, like she's just raging uh, temper. And this started, and we were like, what is going on? And this would happen for about three hours. She wouldn't calm down, and she would be throwing stuff at the door, she'd try to kick us and bite us, and this behavior was just totally wild. We were like, is this, is, this, uh, is this stuff that happens during sleep, you know, the night terrors type thing? And this went on night after night after night to the point where we were, we were just so tired. And it went on for eight weeks. And we were looking at the symptoms and thinking, this is a discipline issue. You know, here she is, she's waking up and she is just causing chaos. So we need to get strong on discipline in the day. And we need to make sure that she knows who's the boss. And, and if we're going to break this thing, it's got to, you know. And we, we were looking at all these things. And it was my mother who turned around. She, she came to stay and she saw this behavior. And she said, it's, it's extreme behavior. She said, but I'm a friend of mine, I'm one of six. So my mum, pretty, pretty, um, yeah, she's had a lot of experience. She's pretty experienced in this area. She said, look, your youngest brother, his behavior would turn. Whenever there was ill health, whenever something was happening. So I heard this and thought, okay, constantly, during the day she seems absolutely fine. 
But I heard it, took note of it and thought, nah, mum, you're wrong on this one. And I was sitting down with Jessica in the day one time and she said to me, my ear's really hurting. And I suddenly thought, oof, okay, earache. I remember taking her to the doctors and the doctor was, looked in her ears and was like, wow, they are really bad. And she's got this infection. And we suddenly thought, maybe this is, this is what's going on. And so we took her, put her on antibiotics, got it cleared, and suddenly it stopped. <laughs> and it was like, Lord, thank you. We couldn't have taken it. Honestly, we were, we were at absolute breaking point. We just didn't know what to do. And yet we were looking at the symptoms of this behavior without actually dealing with the, the root issue, the cause of what was going on. Jesus here, when he's bringing something new, he really wants to come and deal with the root cause of the problems in the world. That's what he's come to do. He's de- he wants to deal with sin. Okay? He's looking at the underlying problem of mankind. And so he addresses this issue of sin straight away. It's provocative, but it's very, very intentional. And, do you know, this is an issue for all of us. That's the reality. Whether we appear to have it all together, whether we know the Bible inside out, whether we look to be successful, the Bible tells us that since Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, that actually sin is inherent in mankind for all of us. Our nature is prone to sin. It's prone to fall short of doing um, things God's way. It's prone to looking after self. That's our nature. But Jesus is pointing in this story, he's wanting us to look at the cause and not the symptoms. He's calling us as Christians to recognize the real problem, that a sinful nature is going to lead to many outward symptoms in people's lives. But he has come to deal with the root problem. He's pointing to the fact also that he is God. He's pointing to his authority, his authority to forgive, his authority to not only heal physically, but to heal spiritually. His authority to not only heal someone on this earth, but to heal them for eternity. And he throws out this question where there is only one answer in this story. Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? And we know the answer. They're both impossible without God. That's the answer. They're both impossible things to do without God. And he moves on to using this phrase that, again, is very, very deliberate in this story. And he wants to tell us something by it. He uses this phrase, the son of man. And for us, we may not automatically go to where we should be going when we think of this phrase. But to the scribes who know the law, to who he's addressing, they would know exactly what Jesus is saying. He says, I want you to know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive. And they would have automatically known, this was from Daniel 7. Okay, I want to just read this to you. It says, in my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. 
His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. This was a dream that Daniel had over 500 years before Jesus was on earth. And yet, it's a dream that prophesies about one coming who would bring a new kingdom, a new covenant, about someone who would be given the authority to bring God's judgment and forgiveness. It's about one who would establish a kingdom that will never be destroyed. And Jesus knew that using this phrase would clearly indicate that he is this son of man. He knew that he would rule and establish a new kingdom, a new kingdom rule. And Jesus is pointing once again here to the scribes that he is the genuine Messiah. Just by using that phrase, I am this son of man, the one who's been given authority to heal, the one who's been given authority to forgive, the one who is going to establish this new kingdom. So that's another area of a new way that he was talking about. And the other big new way in this story that Jesus is pointing to, he's pointing to, he wants to challenge something we call temple theology. Okay? And essentially, the temple was so important to the Jewish nation. Because we know the story of Exodus, as um, Jesus dwelt in tents, and then they built this temple. This was where the very presence of God was. This was what? made the people of Israel stand out. They were God's people because he was present in the temple. And this is so important to them. But actually, Jesus is wanting to challenge this theology. He's saying there's a new way coming. And the temple used to be the place to encounter God. It used to be the place where you would go and you would receive forgiveness. But he's pointing to the fact that he is the very presence of God. He's in the house. He's pointing to the fact that no longer will you have to go to the temple to encounter him. But this can happen wherever God is. He's pointing to the fact that soon the Holy Spirit will reside in each and every one of us. And we will actually become his living temples. And we will bring him wherever we go. Actually, we will have the authority to heal the sick. The authority that he has, we will be given. We'll have the authority to bind up the brokenhearted. These are three things in this story that Jesus wants to understand. There's a new way coming. There's a new kingdom coming. And it's going to flip what they were currently experiencing on its head. Secondly, let's look at the next story. Jesus calls Levi and eats with sinners. Once again, Jesus went outside, went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eaten with him and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And when the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have come not to call the righteous, but to call sinners. So what's going on? Very simple story here. Jesus is called Levi, this tax collector, who's actually probably Matthew, the disciple. 
Um, but originally it's called Levi often. They were given new names or maybe had two names. So this is Matthew, Matthew's gospel. This is him, tax collector. And he's called him to follow him. And he gets up, he leaves his booth straight away. And he goes, invites Jesus to his house. And all of Matthew's friends or Levi's friends are all tax collectors or sinners uh, when the Pharisees look at them. And Jesus is sitting down, eating with them. The Pharisees come along. They say, what is he doing eating with these guys? And Jesus answers them. So what are the things that we're supposed to, we're supposed to be being done in their culture? What are some of the things we need to understand from this story to understand what's going on? Firstly, just try and help you understand the tax collector, who these guys are. Tax collectors were essentially collaborators to the Roman Empire. And Rome wanted to collect tax in from the nation of Israel. And they were very clever in doing this because they actually used locals to, to collect the tax. It meant it was far more effective because actually locals knew what people were making. They knew uh, how to not let the tax slip through their hands. And they were, what the tax collector would do is they would pay up front to the Roman Empire what they wanted. And they would then go and collect the tax. And whatever they were wanting to make on top of it, they would. So they would extort their own people to make sure that they were making their living. And if there was any problems, they'd call the Roman army in. They were the, they were the muscle they could call in to make sure that this thing happened. Okay? So when we talk about tax collectors, these guys were not liked at all by their own people, obviously, because they were um, Israelites who were working, collaborating with the enemy. Okay? And what happened is they were actually excommunicated from their community. They were seen as such lowlifes that they weren't allowed to be part of the community. They weren't allowed to come to the temple because they were seen as sinners. And when we think about sinners, actually, we need to understand tax collectors were seen as sinners. But sinners were, they did have quite a broad sense in this day. Uh, lots of people would have been put into the sinners category if you weren't um, 100% pedigree. So if you came from a family where there was a, a mix of Israel and something else, actually, you were seen as a sinner. Okay, If you were, obviously, a, a robber, a thief, uh, anything like that, you were seen as a sinner. And you were seen as unclean. And you weren't allowed to associate in this culture with the unclean in society. Okay? So they were, they were put on the right, the very edge of the community. The Pharisees, try and help you to understand these guys, because they're just slightly different. They were a denomination of, um, or a sect of the Jewish people. And you know, they actually started with good intentions, uh, the Pharisees. They um, saw that culture was coming in that was mixing with the culture of Israel, obviously as other places took over this nation. And they were there to point out and to look at different cultures coming in and saying, hold on, we're the people of God. And we want to stay clean. So this here, what you're doing here is wrong. And this is what they would do. They would point out and say, we must stay away from this. We must stay away from that. We must stay away from that. And I think it started out as a good thing. But actually what ends up happening is you end up banning everything. And self-righteousness starts to creep in. And you stay away from anything that can infect you. Anything that can make you unclean. Anything that could be associated with uncleanliness. And um, they were actually called separators. Because their whole philosophy was separating yourself from the unclean and staying clean. 
So this is the Pharisees. This is what's going on here. Essentially, their, their theology was, if we mix with the unclean, we will become unclean. So we don't even mix with them because we need to stay clean. And we will get infected like a disease, like a parasite. If we have anything to do with that, we're likely to get infected. And so we'll stay away. So this is the culture of what's going on in this. So when they're saying to Jesus, why are you eating with sinners? There's this idea that actually Jesus has sat down with the unclean and he's made himself unclean. In one sense, he's actually signed his own death warrant. That's what they're looking at and thinking, crazy. Thinks he's a prophet, but he's just made himself unclean. He's now a sinner. He now is possibly being shifted onto the outside of the community, excommunicated from the Pharisees. And this is what they'll be teaching. So what new way is Jesus pointing to in this story? What new things is he bringing to them? Do you know, as we heard in the first story, he is wanting to deal once again with the root issue of sin. He's come to deal with sinners. And as I've already alluded to, actually, we're all sinners. That's the reality. That's what Jesus knows. Jesus was actually more interested, though, prophetically, in bringing his kingdom. His kingdom was about bringing an end to exile. His new kingdom was about bringing an end to exile. When you look in passages in Old Testament scripture, the prophecies, it was about bringing an end to the exile of people. Those who had been excommunicated, those who had been rejected by the culture. He came actually for those who knew they needed help and forgiveness. It was those who were spiritually sick that he'd come to rescue. Those who weren't allowed into the temple. And actually Jesus came as a spiritual doctor, wanting to bring healing and forgiveness to many in that culture. And just as in the last chapter, in chapter 1, we see Jesus touching a leper and seeing this guy become clean, healed. In this chapter, Jesus wants to touch spiritual lepers to bring them cleansing, to heal them. Isaiah 25, 6 to 9 says, On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. Something else Jesus is doing in this story is he's reenacting something that's going to come in the future. Okay? He's acting out a long-awaited messianic banquet. But what's interesting is this banquet that's taking place here is with all the wrong people in the presence of Jesus. But the interesting thing to note is that the very people with the greatest confidence that they will have a place at this banquet, at this feast, are the very people who find themselves standing on the outside looking in. Have you noticed that? The Pharisees are not involved in this. They're not involved in this banquet with Jesus. That he's trying to say, look, this is what I'm bringing. It's a new kingdom. 
And I was really stirred by a story that I heard um, as I was away at this conference by a lady called Natalie Williams. Uh, excellent story. She challenged, I think, some of the concepts here that we, we look at symptoms, we don't look at cause. And we, like the Pharisees, they want to stay clear of anything they see as unclean or unworthy. And she tells a story of a lady in her church who um, was a relatively new Christian, but had been a Christian there for three years, come from a very difficult background, and, but saved dramatically, single mum, three children, not educated. And as she became a Christian and she got involved in the church, she got a real heart for what God was doing. The church was about to step into a new area in the community, which was a very tough area. And she decided she was going to go and get a degree. And so she went and she got this degree, and she got a 2-1. She did really well. She, it was her birthday, and she had invited Natalie to her birthday party. And a couple of hours before Natalie arrived at this birthday party, she called her up on the phone. said, Natalie, you, you don't need to come, by the way. There's only... There's only a few people from church invited. It's going to be all of my mates from my local area, and we're all going to be rattled. We're all going to be drunk. And that was a bit like, okay, uh, I'm still coming. Um, she didn't quite know what to make of it. She turns up at the party, and she arrives there, and she was like, no, everybody is absolutely rattled. Everyone is blind drunk, and her friend is, is blind drunk. But she welcomes it in, and she says, look, come along, and they've got this punch bowl on the table, and... She says, Natalie, do you, want a, do you want a punch? And so she took the cup and she tasted it. She sipped it like, oh, my word, it's pure vodka. Um, she's like, I'm driving. I, I will take something else. And Natalie was just slightly confused. She was a bit like, you know, I've come to this party. This is a girl, a lady in the church who's been with us three years. And she's, she's blind drunk with all of her friends. Didn't quite know what to make of it. And her friend sat, sat down with her, started talking about what God was saying to her. And um, she was excited. And she's like, look, I feel like God has called me to give up my job this year to invest in the church, to invest in this area. And already this week, I've seen him come through on three different areas that he's going to give me as different forms of work that are going to help me to survive and help me to, um, to invest in this area of church life. And she came away from this party and she thought about all those things that we're tempted to look at. And she suddenly thought, you know what, this lady, she's a single mum, and she has chosen, because God has spoken to her, to give up her job and to serve the church, because God has spoken. And she said, we get so obsessed with looking at the drunkenness, the symptom, something that actually she's working through in her life, and yet how many of us would actually give up our job Tomorrow, if God spoke and said, give it up. And this is a big challenge for us as a church. Because this is where we see a pharisaical um, spirit coming in. When we start looking at symptoms and judging people based on the symptoms. And I just think we need to be so careful as a church not to judge people by patterns of behavior. By our own Christian taboos. We read in this story, Levi got up and left his booth. He left his work. And he followed Jesus for the next three years of his life as a disciple. He got to hang out with Jesus and do remarkable things. As Jesus actually looked at his heart, 
and he showed them love and grace. That's the challenge for us as a church. Finally, let's move on. Jesus is questioned about fasting. Now, John's disciples and Pharisees, and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, otherwise the new piece will pull away and the old making the tear worse. Pull away from the old and the, tear, and the making the tear worse. No one pours new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wine will burst the skins and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. So it seems in this story that there's an obvious sort of festival going on. That meant the Jewish nation should be fasting. And here is Jesus as he's questioned by, again, Pharisees, teachers of the law. Um, why is it that John the Baptist's disciples and the Pharisees are fasting, and yet you're not observing, you're not obeying the festival, uh, you're not obeying the law? And Jesus likens himself here to a bridegroom. He suggests this isn't the time to fast, and he then uses these two analogies. Uh, it's an analogy of a patch of unshrink cloth being sewn onto an old garment and pouring new wine into old wineskins. So again, this question, what is it that Jesus wants to bring? What new things is he wanting to bring into this culture? I just want to say fasting is a very biblical culture uh, and concept. Actually, fasting started right back in the Garden of Eden, if you think about it. God told Adam and Eve not to eat of this tree. I want to say Jesus isn't against fasting. That's not what he's trying to bring here. This isn't the teaching he's bringing. Actually, he teaches... We find it in the Gospels that he teaches it's good. And it's crucial to do at certain times. And he doesn't say, if you fast, he says, when you fast. So this is an expectation that fasting was biblical, it was right, it was good. So I wanted to say, Jesus isn't suggesting that we don't fast. But he is making a point that he is the bridegroom. And actually what he's doing here, if you can help, he's using the law against the people here. Um, The only time you couldn't fast or were allowed to not fast was during a wedding. You were to celebrate. And he's essentially saying, listen, the bridegroom is here. He's actually pointing to the fact that, and we know this from Old Testament scripture, the groom and the bride, this wedding, this analogy of a wedding was, was God marrying the church. Okay, It was his people. It was his covenant promise. And um, he's suggesting he is the bridegroom that's come. And so this time right now is a wedding. It's a celebration. It's a time to rejoice, and it's not a time for fasting. But he's also pointing to something new that he's saying, no longer will, can you impose the law. Okay, It's not about imposing the law on people anymore. Actually, the relationship is changing. The law is no longer going to be relevant in this. Actually, people fasting, they're going to do it out of a heart to want to. They're not going to have to just observe certain festivals and times. It's not about following rules and regulations and traditions. It's about a relationship. He then uses these two analogies to basically say, you can't, you can't sew this piece of cloth onto a, a new piece, and you can't pour old wine, new wine into old wineskins. He's, he's trying to say, you can't just attach the things that I'm bringing onto the old, onto the law. Okay, it won't work. 
You can't just decide to follow the Pharisees and take on my teaching. You could, it's not just an add-on that you can suddenly say, I like what you're doing. I'll just add yours on to what I'm currently doing. He's actually saying it will tear apart. It will burst open. They're so contrary. They're so contradictory. They don't go together. This new relationship that Jesus is bringing does not go together with the law. It's the opposite. And it's explosive. You try and put them together, try and put them together. For you uh, scientists out there, this is cesium and water. It's an explosive combination, not in a good way. Okay? It just can't go together. So he's saying you can't just take what I'm bringing and add it on to what you currently have. It's all or nothing. So listen, just to conclude, there's three stories here. I want to say I see in the world many angry Christians. I was thinking about this. Blogging or Facebooking in the world who want to point out what you're not allowed to do or pointing out the faults in people's lives or the symptoms in people's lives and acting very similar to the scribes and the Pharisees. And yet, when I see Jesus, and just to say, just a caveat, this doesn't mean that we are not to say anything when we see sin in people's lives. Okay, it doesn't mean that. But for some, the people I'm talking about are those who, it's constant ranting. It's constantly tripping people up and telling them they're doing this and they're doing that and you can't do this and you can't do that. And there's never any love coming from these. When I see Jesus in the Gospels, and we're going to see him more and more, actually, he tended to be very direct to the religious leaders, to those actually who probably should know better. And yet, when you see him interacting with those who were excommunicated, those seen as sinners, you see a grace and a love there because uh, he's come to meet with them. It's when he sees religious leaders being proud and pious that he actually responds most directly. I think for us, as we, as we look at the Gospels, we need to see this, and we need to see what we've been called to be as a community, as a church. We're not to be those who constantly point out the faults of others. Jesus doesn't gloss over the problems that are here. He actually knows the root cause of the problem. And he knows it's sin. And he knows that he has the power and the authority to forgive all sin through the victory on the cross. But Jesus, he chose to be with people. He chose to spend time talking to people and hearing them. And he just called them to come and follow me. He chose to bring them into his friendship groups as opposed to rejecting them. He called them not to follow rules and regulations, but to be in relationship with him, a relationship of love. He came seeking those who could see and who knew they needed saving from themselves, from their selfish, greedy ways. He came looking for those who were done with trying and trying to live in a certain way. Those who recognized that actually, in and of themselves, they could not please God. And I want to urge us as Freedom Church this morning to be a church 
that responds in the same way as Jesus. Following his new way of relationship and love and grace. And you know, I know it's easy for us to judge people. We do it all the time. In fact, we're told we instinctively judge people within the first six seconds of meeting someone. We typecast them. But you know, Jesus sees everything. He sees our rebellion. And yet, he loves to hang out with us. He loves who he's made us to be. And he's called us to live not by the law any longer. Not to get caught up in the external symptoms but to love the sinner and to call people to follow him. This is this new way that he has called us as a church to interact, engage with our community around us, to love them and call them to follow the one who can forgive all sins.